Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it Over the last six years, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have been working on the Call of the Uplands campaign. Our mission through that campaign was to improve 9 million acres of upland habitat, introduce new people to the uplands, and generate 500 million, one half a billion dollars for the organization's upland habitat mission. Within this very same window of time, Howard Vincent, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's longtime president and CEO since the year 2000, started working on the succession plan for his career in conservation and for the leadership of the organization as, the, the, as he retires and we search out the next president and CEO. In today's episode, we celebrate the intersection of both of those important paths with the culmination of the Call of the Uplands campaign as one of the monumental achievements of Howard Vincent's storied conservation career as he heads into retirement, and I can officially call him Grandpa Howie for the first time. <laughs> that feels awkward to say to my boss for the last 20 years, but well, I'll call him Grandpa Howie and joining me for this very fun and exciting conversation with Howard is Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Chief Development Officer, David Buell. Uh, David, you want to try out Grandpa Howie for a second? You want to yeah, call Grandpa <laughs> Howie. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't feel quite right yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think everyone's going to have to get used to it because that's the reality. <laughs> How does it feel to be Grandpa Howie here? <laughs> uh, spectacular. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we came into this grandpa phase, you know, just when COVID was starting and uh, my son Marco had Ezra born on February 29th of 2000. So right mm. at the beginning of this, uh, he followed that up a year later with identical girls, uh, <laughs> Emmy and Alma. And it has just been like the best two years, you know, of my life to be able to have quality time with them. And, and uh, you know, to the point, to the culmination of, you know, a spectacular career. I've been blessed and had the best job on the planet forever. Uh, and I'm just so excited for the future of the organization and the team we've built uh, and the opportunities ahead uh, for this organization to take it even further. So it's 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 been good. And I'll take uh, Grandpa Howie all day long. <laughs> well, I, you mentioned Ezra was born on February 29th. So leap yeah. day. I don't I don't. I don't know that I knew that. Yes. That's pretty yes. So we have a we have another leap day coming up um next year. February um It'll be one. 2024. It'll be <laughs> right. It'll be one, but in reality it will be yeah. four, four years, years old. old. Yeah. Next year, yeah. it uh, we could come celebrate uh Ezra's birthday the day before Pheasant Fest starts in uh Sioux Falls, South Dakota that there day. we go. <laughs> 
Bob got that plug in really quick. Right, right, right. Pheasantfest.org. Check it out March 1st, 2nd. <laughs> um, we're going to talk um, about kind of the, the culmination of your career and your, your journey. We, it, it, I think it's fun that um, we're chatting from, you know, we have you and David on opposite ends of the country right now. Um, you know, it's kind of one of the magic outcomes of COVID, of a pandemic, is we use all these tools, uh, including podcasting tools virtually now. So, David, you're you're checking in from, well, darn near yeah. the Canadian border, right? Uh, I can see it from here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the shores of Lake Superior um, in northern Minnesota. And Howard's checking in from, where are you today, Howard? So we're in essentially West Palm Beach area. And so I can't see Cuba, but it's just down the road of her. And it's 85 and sunny, so I win. <laughs> and, uh, and grandchildren are coming for the second week of your vacation they are. next yes, week. Yes, they are. So looking forward to that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what I want to do today is, you know, for folks... Folks, maybe can go. They can go back and listen to episode thirty, which we chatted a bit about your your career path. We're going to revisit some of those um, stories as a way of um, talking about celebrating your career, right? The achievements that uh, you you've accomplished within Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as its leader. But it leads to the Call of the Uplands campaign, which we celebrated at National Pheasant Fest. And Quail Classic here in Minneapolis just a few weeks back. So I, I want to start at the beginning because it it's so fortuitous with with your story of the rooster um, on, you know, leading into your interview. So so let's take us back to the beginning and how you started as a volunteer and lead me to that interview with Jeff Finden. Yeah. So I'll, I'll shorten this, but, you know, I came to the organization like so many of our chapter leaders and members and volunteers. Somebody put a hand on me and volunteered me to go help this organization set up some accounting systems. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't thrilled that somebody, a, f a friend of mine would volunteer me, you know, go ahead mm -hmm. and you do that yourself. But, you know, don't throw me under the bus. And, but he's a friend. And so you do it. And I helped uh, set up a, a system that would allow, at that moment, 12 chapters to capture their information uh, and consolidate it. And, you know, that would be a system that they could at least grow with. Because you're a public accountant. By yeah, trade. so I'm in public accounting, and that's my space. I was in small business consulting. Uh, the friend of mine was in the tax area, so... Uh, he wasn't great at that. So, and, and we were both hunters. And so, you know, we had that commonality, but at the end of the day, um, I meet Jeff in his basement. And again, I'm looking up sideways at my friend going, this is the national headquarters of, mm -hmm. you know, pheasants for who, and, <laughs> uh, but I, the, the bigger hook came when uh, about a seven, eight months later, we go to the national meeting of pheasants forever. Uh, and it's in uh, Wilmer, Minnesota. <laughs> Again, the national meeting, Wilmer, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I go to make the presentation to the treasurers 
and there's like 50 people in the room and it's like boy that's a lot of people for 12 chapters but you know good for us and uh jeff says yeah well this isn't 12 chapters this is 50 chapters hmm. and it's already the system that i'm going to present is already obsolete hmm. and you got to know jeff pats me on the shoulder and says well you got to present something and walks out of the room and so now i actually had to go you know we did the presentation the concept and then i actually had to go back and develop a system that would would be sustainable long term and that brought me deeper into the organization um, with a longer view right how do we build something that they could take this to 200 chapters or 300 chapters and um, so it was a longer project i started to meet the people uh, and that was you know kind of the biggest best hook you know at that moment and then i did the audit for them uh, and some other pro bono work, uh, you know, computers were fairly new at that time. And we were putting their, 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 you know, 50 income statements and balance sheets up on a, you know, a tape drive accounting, you know, computer. And so this was all new to everybody. But, mm. um, and then I get a strange call and this is about two years later. So I think it was like 84. 485 when I met Jeff the first time in his basement with that friend of mine. And he, that was Dan Peterson mm. uh, was with the firm. Uh, and then about two years later, um, we're second year of the audit. And I get a call like on a Wednesday afternoon and it's Jeff Finden again, the first CEO um, says, Hey, make me for breakfast at Perkins out in white bear Lake, you know, close to his home. And like, okay, it doesn't give me any heads up as to what we're going to talk about. Uh, and so I'm coming out of downtown, essentially downtown Minneapolis on my way out to St. Paul. And you go through an area, and this was really spooky, um, arguably the busiest traffic uh, area in the Twin Cities. So where you have 30, uh, Interstate 35E and Highway 94, it's called Spaghetti Junction. And as I'm passing through that, a rooster pheasant flies right over the top of the interstate, right over the top of my car. And it mm -hmm. was, holy cow. I mean, mm -hmm. there's not a blade of grass or, you know, any seeable, nothing but concrete and blacktop. And wow, that was weird. So I pull into Perkins, you know, go in there and say, boy, I just saw the weirdest thing. And just, <laughs> you know, there's railroad tracks down there, you mm -hmm. know, rain elevators, and there's some birds down there. So it's like, well, that was still strange. And, <laughs> and so sitting in front of Jeff was a stack of papers, probably, I don't know, four or five inches deep. And he says, well, um, I want you to be our first director of finance. Uh, so I need you to take the job or and he slides the stack what it was it was a stack of resumes slides them over to me and says or you find the person in that stack hmm. that's your choice and you know i wasn't expecting that i wasn't anticipating that it was in my management letter after one of the audits you know that you're going to have to build an accounting team internally hmm. um blah 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 
And at the same time, I never, you know, wasn't anticipating that at all. Uh, my name wasn't in the resumes. <laughs> I had never applied for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I love what I did in public accounting. I love my client base. Uh, we had just gone through a merger. Um, so this, you know, main herdman who I worked for merged with Pete Barwick and they came together to become KPMG today, one of the largest accounting consulting firms in the world. Um, so it was a different atmosphere. Uh, it took me, you know, about a month to decide, you know, we, I talked him back and forth with Jeff, talked with, you know, some of the people in my firm, uh, and it just felt like if I'm going to step out of public accounting, this would be a, a nice transition. Uh, but my handshake with Jeff was, um, I'm going to do this, but it's going to be, you know, the th three years, I'm going to give mm -hmm. you three years and then mm -hmm. I'm going to move on. Um, I'm going to do all the things I think we need to put in place and in infrastructure systems. Um, and that was good. Jeff was good with that. I was good with that. Um, and then I think, you know, the magic happened after that, which is you start to meet the people. We were, you know, that we were all of 12 people was the entire organization at that time. They were growing phenomenally chapters. Um, all of us had a, you know, a bullet on our job description that said other duties as a <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah. So I was covering, you know, as director of finance, I was covering 30 plus banquets a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, meeting the chapter volunteers, the time, mm -hmm. the energy, the passion, the excitement that they brought mm -hmm. um, starts rubbing off. And we had some incredible people, um, you know, the wildlife professionals, Jim Woolley, Rick Young, um, who were just driven uh, to do things for this resource. Um, and, you know, it wasn't instantaneous, but it was a good maybe two years down the road that I started to imagine that this could be somewhere, this, this could be a legacy. This could hmm. be my calling. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, imagine I'd be CEO or, you know, lead the organization someday, but you know, I, I started to believe, let's just say that I started to believe and no matter what I liked in public accounting, I did recognize that was a, you're doing a lot of necessary evils, mm -hmm. uh, but here I was doing something that was meaningful. I had two young boys, um, and this was meaningful, I think to them mm -hmm. and my family and so that that was, you know, I think the, the magic of wanting to stay and really wanting to grow this organization. When you think back to when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was what was your answer to that question? Oh, God, you know what? Um, this is it's, it's kind of a, a stupid answer. I want to be an accountant. <laughs> um, so we were a poor family, right? Uh -huh. I was the last of 11 kids. We lived in a housing project in Duluth. Um, and make no mistake, I was never hungry. I never wanted for anything, but we were poor. Hmm. 
And my sisters used to babysit. This is up in Duluth, Minnesota. My sister mm-hmm. used to babysit out at a cabin during the summer with this family, really a nice family, uh, Mr. Unzen. He was a CPA. And he was like the first individual, like professional, successful, just the nicest man you could ever be. And I'm all of, you know, six or eight. Mm-hmm. And just imagining the things they had and how nice they were. Um, okay, I want to be that. Mm. Right? I want to. And I didn't. And, and even going into high school and taking bookkeeping classes and then into college accounting, I really didn't really know what it all meant. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I wasn't, you know, going through college at University of Minnesota Duluth, you know, got an accounting degree. I was not a good student by any stretch. Uh, especially in that accounting space. I mean, my I had to take retake some classes to get my 2.0 to graduate. Mm-hmm. Everything else, you know, I was an A-B student and everything else on that, you know, at, at college. Um, but, um, you know, I had a skill set um, that kind of carried me. So the toolbox was there. Um, I, I love the interaction. I love the clients that I work with, small business owners um, that, um, you know, I felt like I was helping them. I was doing their their monthly financial statements, helping them make business decisions, and then doing their corporate and personal tax returns. So it was a kind of one-stop shop for all of these individuals, these business owners. And so I love that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, coming to Pheasants Forever and projecting those unique chapter volunteers, right? The, of a chapter, mm-hmm. the president, the treasurer, the habitat chair, the banquet chair, those were like small businesses and mm-hmm. I felt the same. So I need to help them do what they do, right? Understanding what a chapter's role, what national office operations role was, how those two things could meet, but that we serve them, right? So this is almost no different than, you know, being in the accounting, you're servicing your client. And that was the same kind of feeling mm-hmm. that I had and the same thing we wanted to project out of national, that these are volunteers. We're paid to be here. Now we need to make their lives easier. We need to make them more efficient and effective for the time that they're uh, deploying. And so it, it all felt right. Mm. So that, that's a long way around. No, it's an interesting what strikes me you know, you look at our employee team of 400 plus and, you know, today we have the advantage of, you know, be a relatively a large organization, a sought after place to get a job. And there's an awful lot of people that are, you know, they live to go bird hunting, to chase around bird dogs. They they live for kind of the lifestyle of, of what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever represents. And we get our opportunity to pick people that have really strong skill sets, whether that's marketing, graphic design, um, biology, you know, government affairs, accounting. And we can find people that dovetail both of those. You're, it was fortuitous with you because you don't, you love the outdoors, but you don't live to bird hunt, you know, you're, you're not yeah. the guy with like a kennel full of dogs at home. Right. But you're a terrific accountant 
who, you know, looked at this organization as an opportunity to grow small business and, you know, help chapters grow. So it was, I think, extremely fortuitous that the organization, Jeff, was able to tap into your expertise as an accountant and, and have somebody release that rooster over 35 to let you believe that it was, there was serendipity at work here, right? That, that, uh, that, that this, you were the, the perfect person at the right time to execute what was needed for the growth of this organization. Is that a long-winded assessment? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'll agree with everything except that I was, you know, a good accountant. I was a, <laughs> an average accountant, but I, you know, I understand. I understood the problems, the challenges. I knew how to get the answers. So um, one of the things, you know, I learned from Jeff Finden, right? Um, how do you, you know, when you have a need, how do you go fill that need? How do you go find the right person? And so, you know, this is quite a few years down the road, but when we grew to a point where, you know, we needed a <laughs> controller, right? I went out and got the best accountant, right? And James Gurman, mm. right? I mean, always hire someone who's, you know, twice as smart as you. Um, and that was, you know, on my part, I'll, I'll say that's genius, right? Mm -hmm. Finding people, finding, you know, David Buse, finding Bob St. Pierre's with these incredible talents that, I lack wholly um, to carry the organization. So what are our needs? And, that, and that's, you know, I, that goes back to Jeff Finden. What, what do we need right now, right? We needed credibility uh, for, for a habitat conservation organization. Okay, let's go get the number one pheasant biologist from Iowa, yeah. right? Because Iowa was, you know, the central, you know, I would arguably South Dakota were the best places to hunt pheasants on the planet at that moment. Let's go get him, right? Now, you know, every edition after that was thoughtful. And yes, I was the right person for that moment. Uh, and but uh, the accounting skill set, you know, was deeply magnified, adding you know, James to the team. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and we all know that today. Right. I mean, <clears throat> arguably, he's the hub that makes this wheel go around. Right on. Yeah, he's he is incredibly val the most valuable member of the team that nobody knows about on the outside. Right. Right. right? right. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly valuable. I, I want to get into, you know, you talk about being the right person at the right time, making these important um, choices about hiring the right people. You've done that throughout your career with a, some some high watermarks. And I want to talk about each of those before. Before I go there, I got to ask you the question about that rooster flying over 30. Because, right, I live I live oh. in that same area, too. And, there, you know, downtown Minneapolis to St. Paul, and you're on your way to what turns out to be, you know, outside of your family, the biggest moment career-wise in this rooster flies over the highway. How often have you thought about that? And do you think of that as a symbol of, a moment in your life. I, I do. I do. Yeah. I, you know, I drive through that area kind of on a regular basis. Grandpa Howie from where we live in, you know, White Bear Lake to St. Paul, where my son and grandchildren live. We drive that route regularly. And, you know, my family's tired of me 
you know, I stopped saying it a decade ago. <laughs> when that rooster flew over, that was, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, you know, the hair on the back, you know, my neck kind of stood up when it happened. Mm-hmm. It was like, holy cow. And then to have Jeff, you know, slide the resumes across and go, well, either you take the job or find somebody to do it. Right. And then, you know, not mm. anticipating that at all and, you know, cocking your head a little bit and going, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, now that, you know, wasn't the reason I took it because of that, you know, let's call it a sign. <laughs> right. Know, right. Conversations with my wife, you know, Wendy and, you know, it's, you know, I guess I could go back and one of the things that um, helped me really make the decision was uh, Marco. Marco was uh, not even a year old yet. I and coming out of a tax season in public accounting is is brutal. I saw mm-hmm. my Marco in the crib sleeping in the morning when I left, and I saw him in the crib sleeping when I came home. Mm-hmm. And that was for you know arguably two three months. Um, so what's my quality of life? Uh, did I want to be yeah. a partner? Right, and that's kind of the goal and the reality of that and is this what I'm setting myself up for, right? Is this, is this where I want to go or, Hmm. and believe me, I've put more time and energy, you know, when I came to Pheasants Forever covering banquets, doing those things, but it was, um, I was in control of my time and energy. And when you're in public accounting, uh, like many service industries, you're at the whim of your clients and you're always uh, flying you know, with fire. Yeah. Uh, so controlling your world a little bit and your quality of life was imp- very important to me. And we, you know, we, uh, same thing I was, so I was driving an hour from where we lived in Burnsville, Minnesota to the White Bear Lock offices um, every day through the heart of downtown St. Paul because 35E wasn't completed. Mm at that time it just kind of dead end there for about two miles and it's a strange Mm. thing Mm -hmm. Uh, so you had to actually physically had to drive through downtown st paul to get north Mm. and um so i worked for a year for jeff and then had the conversation to say you know does is this working for you right am i doing what you need me to do um because of you know the thought was should i move out to this area and Jeff said it worked, you know, he liked what I was doing. I liked what I was doing. So then we did move out to this area. Um, and something as innocuous as getting two hours back in your day mm-hmm. was startling. Yeah. Um, you know, I had done it my whole accounting career. I live, I work, you know, downtown, say, uh, downtown Minneapolis. So it was an hour for my entire accounting career. And it was so normal that you don't think too much about it until you get it back. And the quality of life, again, two hours back in a day with two young children was awesome. Yeah. Um, and it kind of sets yourself up to build on that about why you're doing things. Um, so it just, you know, it kept feeling right. It kept uh, kind of building on itself that this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and I can have an impact. We can't, we, you know, as an organization can have a greater impact 
you're right. And that's the next evolution of the organization, really looking internally to ourselves. Um, you know, we have a mission statement, but are we really delivering the mission that we're supposed to? So that brings us to you take over as CEO, right? And so we've talked about that process before, how you've taken over from C from Jeff, grabbed that baton. But I want you to, like, what was, and you're leading us right here, what's your thought process when you're in charge day one as the new CEO? What are, what are you thinking about doing for the next iteration of Pheasants Forever? So I think the most important thing that was happening at that moment was we had reached a point where our infrastructure was allowing us to think differently. So arguably for the first 18 years, we had our head down. We were trying to keep the organization, you know, viable. Mm -hmm. um, so when you leave all the money at the local chapter, net fundraising at the local chapter level, how do you fund national operations? And the dog didn't always hunt. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a struggle. But we kept building on it and building on it and building on it. And the timing of these two things, um, Jeff retiring somewhat young uh, to spend more quality time with his wife, Kay, who had Huntington's disease. Um, so going through the national search uh, process, um, being selected to be the next CEO, the timing of that moment where we actually now um, get to self-evaluate, and we are doing that on a regular basis with our leadership team, um, recognizing we're not moving the needle. It still felt like it was one step forward and two steps back. Hmm. And what could we do differently? And at that moment, we recognize that we can't do this ourselves. There's a lot of other organizations, both federal and state partners and other arguably NGOs out there who maybe we could do some things with. And then timing is everything. And again, we've had our head down for 18 plus years. Um, I know we've got the best most passionate wildlife professionals on the planet. Um, we're growing incredibly fast, um, but, right? And there's that big but. Um, so I go, timing is everything. I go meet with this these two incredible women down at uh, Wisconsin Stevens Point, uh, Christine Thomas and Diane Lewick. And they had built a small nonprofit and they had built Becoming an Outdoors Woman. And so I became CEO in January. I think I met with them in March. Um, this was on my, at least in my mind, how do we go from stag events, you know, a man event to mm -hmm. family orientated. And, you know, I, we all felt that if we could bring the family, uh, it was better for the community, it would be sustainable um, and bringing it, uh, becoming an outdoors woman into that uh, being able to provide that. Um, so anyway, I, I drive down to Stevens Point, meet with them, and um, I come with this really business mentality, right? I mean, that's who I am. You know, I, I'm willing to pay a royalty to be able to use this. Uh, here's why we want it. We want to give to all our chapters. We want to engage women. We get women, we get children. 
And they said, well, that's wonderful. You can have it. And I said, well, no, no, I don't want to take it. I, you know, obviously you've got a budget and you need to build on what you want. And they went, no, you know, we built this so people would utilize this so you could have it. You know, thank you. This is awesome. And I was still kind of taken back by that. I said, so, but how do I help you financially? And they said, okay, we're going to tell you a little story. They said, uh, not too long ago, a couple, you know, last year, another organization, not unlike yourself, came in and said, we want to buy Becoming a New Outdoors Woman. And they said, well, it's not for sale, but you can have it. And this other organization said, well, thank you, but we want to own it 100%. We don't want to share it. We want to take it and take it to another level. And they said, well, you know, again, it's not for sale, but you can have it. Um, they said, their response to that was, well, then we're going to build our own program and we're going to blow you out of the water. And I still at this, even at this moment, I, I get pissed hmm. hearing that, right? I mean, I physically, that someone would say that to them or do or present hmm. that to them. And they saw I was upset. And they both smiled and looked at each other and said, Howard, you still don't get it. And I went, no, for somebody, and they stopped me from talking. They said, look, we built this mission to become an outdoors woman. If somebody else could take it and build a new one that would blow us out of the water and do more than we could ever do, that would be awesome. Hmm. So I took, I mean, I really, I took a deep breath and said, okay, well, we'd like to work with you. Um, we'll, we'll figure out how to do that. So I had a couple hour drive home when it just slammed me in the face that their mission was more important than their brand. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me. That was a touch point both personally, professionally, organizationally, that if if we're true to our mission, we don't care who does it, that that's the single most important thing. And it's not an easy thing to get over, honestly, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you have a proprietary feeling about Pheasants Forever, its brand, and what we do versus what other organizations do. But slowly, we recognized. um, So that was March in August, again, timing is everything. Um, some really smart people from the wildlife community pulled together all the CEOs from, well, not all of them, but about 20 of us to get together in Missoula, Montana. And what essentially we did was we formed the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. So instead of these 20 adversarial, arguably proprietary relationships between ducks, turkeys, elk, pheasants, we actually came together, agreed on how we could work together in, Mm. you know, not everything. We weren't going to become one organization. In fact, AWCP is the acronym, uh, is not an organization. Uh, It's still a handshake that we're going to get together and work together. Um, And we focus on Washington, D.C. issues, and we're able to not only take our 140,000 voices to Washington, D.C., but all of the other organizations on common issues, and we're representing 6 million 
mm-hmm. uh, voices for conservation and hunting. And those two things, you know, in that very, you know, it's within seven months of my becoming CEO, I think redefined the organization that mm. there are great organizations out there just as passionate, just as driven to deliver their conservation mission. And we can do this together. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, and then the evolution of who else should be at the table. Mm. And today, AWCP is made up of about 50 of the largest wildlife organizations uh, in the country, representing almost 11, 12 million uh, people. So you could see the, you know, again, the evolution of this, uh, but it also changed our internal thinking of, you know, not having our head down, thinking about us and what we do and how we do it, but who else should be here with us? And both those things coincide and allow us to continue to grow the organization, not just from memberships or chapters, but for real acres, real impact on a broad landscape, a much broader landscape. So, and again, this is something our leadership team did on a regular basis. You know, what, what else mm-hmm. What's next? And, and it was, you know, definitely, and, you know, we weren't leaving anybody behind. The chapter model was strong, um, but what could we add? What could we stack uh, on this organization to be able to do more? Yeah, you, you could see that philosophy carry out in the, the the passing years of the organization where the mission takes precedent over right the individual brand you, you know probably the most obvious way two of the most obvious ways that i think about is the farm bill where we work yes. together with other organizations to you know talk with congress about raising the collective good of the farm bill for habitat and the other thing is how how collaborative we are with organizations around land acquisitions you know you yes. think about legacy amendment in minnesota and you know, working yeah. together with a variety of nonprofit entities and state agencies and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, if we can raise a dollar and then we can match it with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the DNR, then we can, you know, um, stretch those taxpayers' dollars even further. And that collective, let's do good work, that your philosophy, you know, back in 2000, that those are some of the ways it's reverberating that people can obviously see though that resonates for you too doesn't it absolutely yeah um let's hit on a couple other high points i i promise david we'll get to the call of the uplands campaign is <laughs> jerry uh, you're patiently waiting here but we're leading to it right um farm bill biologists critical um watermark in in the history of the organization and Tell us about the creation of the Farm Bill Biologist Program. We represent, you know, 300 some of our employees listening in right now, right? Right, right. Uh, And so this, you know, this is, uh, you know, Rick Young, uh, Matt O'Connor, you know, some of our wildlife professionals and team leaders um, created this program. Again, just a very small granting authority to hire a summer intern in Wisconsin uh, would help go deliver uh, farm bill programs, uh, very specific, very tight, right? These things would improve 
pheasant habitat on working lands, voluntary programs. But the, the magic of this was that young individual, like a college student, worked four months and delivered more acres than the entire, you know, NRCS or uh, FSA offices in that same geography did in the entire year. And they loved it, right? I mean, they had someone who just focused on these programs. Right. Um, they are, had more on their plate than they could ever do. Um, so to have someone come in and do this for them was incredible. And of course they wanted more, you know, how do we hire a full-time person? Um, you know, Rick presented the concept of let's run a pilot and we could do this in a number of other states. Um, and I agreed to one pilot. Um, by the end of the year, we had four mm. and South Dakota was in. Uh, and this took off. This mm -hmm. was uh, incredibly amazing. We had a partner in Natural Resource Conservation Service who was willing to, uh, and, and the state uh, Department of Natural Resources in Wisconsin and Minnesota and South Dakota who were willing to chip dollars in to get these programs in place. Uh, and it just took off from there. We struggled to stay ahead of the opportunities. Uh, in fact, I would say in the next 10 years, uh, as this program grew out from one to four to 50 to 125 we were saying no more than we were saying yes. Um, mm -hmm. And there's incredible number of states who are looking over each other's fences and saying, we want that. We want one of them. We want five of them. Mm -hmm. We want, you know, and today, yeah, we have 300 and close to 50 of, of specifically farm bill biologists, but it's also evolved into habitat specialists, mm -hmm. uh, state coordinators in a number of areas, burn teams, strike teams. You know, what are those needs, again, of our partners that we can help them take their dollar further, um, take our chapter dollars further um, and match. Um, so I think on average, uh, the average chapter dollar, if, if we can raise that, we can match it three, four times. I mean, nationally, in some states, you know, it's double digits uh, for mm -hmm. a number of different reasons, but um, looking for those partners that we can uh, further their mission while staying true to who we are. And that was, that I think that was also a strength of ours in that uh, sometimes we said no, because it wasn't our mission. We could sure take the money, we could sure do the job, but it wasn't going to get us more pheasants. It wasn't going to get us more quail. It wasn't going to, you know, do the things that were in our mission statement. So uh, when you're successful, everybody wants you mm -hmm. to do that, right? I, you know, you could take the word, you know, forever and put anything in front of it. At some point, somebody's asked us to do, right. you know, turtles forever. Mm -hmm. um, any critter you can imagine, they wanted us to be blank forever. Um, and that's not quite who we are now, as long as it was habitat, I mean, we could work on, and we, we have worked mm -hmm. on, you know, burrowing turtles, I think in the Southeast, you know, there's an endangered species Well, the same thing that they need is what quail need. Mm -hmm. Then we will do it. Yeah. Um, golden wing warbler, woodcock, right. 
in, in the Pennsylvania as well. There's edge species that, you know, we can have an impact on both in quail and pheasants in that geography. So that's, that was always, you know, the default, you know, is this going to give us what we want? You can tie it back to your conversation about AWCP, the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, right? Like working together and that, that Genesis helped led to the Farm Bill Biologist Program. And the Farm Bill Biologist Program, you've mentioned it a couple of times, led to quail forever. Because yes. people <clears throat> people in the southern um, portion of the United States where pheasants, the pheasant range stops and the quail range begins, we're looking over the fence and saying, you guys have yeah. something unique going here. So tell us about the creation of Quail Forever and how that the farm bill biologists and successes led to Quail Forever's creation. So I'm going to leave a big part of the story out and we'd have to have that conversation over drinks, a lot of drinks, (laughs) but basically, you know, as the organization continued to grow, let's say grow South, you know, out of Minnesota through Iowa into Missouri, we start getting on the edge of the southern pheasant range and creeping into the northern quail range. And there's absolutely people and even legislators who said, you know, I'm, I live in, you know, I'm a senator in Georgia. We want your program. We want to be able to leave chapters with all the money. Um, so we uh, created quail forever. And again, there's about a a year or two in here where we tried to do it with another organization that chose not to for, I'd say all the wrong reasons. Uh, But uh, we did want to have a national impact uh, and a belief that we could impact upland bird resources uh, that we've never been able to before. Um, We could have a greater impact in Washington, DC. I mean, if you think about the impact across the pheasant range, let's say arguably nice and neat, it's 25 states, that means 25, uh, well, 50 senators, X number of representatives. Boy, what if we could have, you know, a complete geography nationally, we could get more for the farm bill, we could get more in the transportation bill, we could get uh, a greater punch politically Mm -hmm. uh, in Washington, DC, that played a big role. Um, and there were people who wanted the model, who wanted to be able to raise money locally and drive that in the ground. Uh, and so also, you know, it took a little while for the state agencies in that geography to get their head around it. And that was kind of a frustration to us because we were very transparent. We were very open as to here's our model. Here's what we do. We've had, you know, at that moment, 20 years of experience you know, you can talk to the, let's say the DNR directors in the northern, in, in the pheasant range as to who we are and what we do. And it still took them about 10 years to really get through the mud and the muck that was created by that other, you know, this former quail organization. So, um, but again, it goes, you know, to your question, our mindset of where we could have the greatest impact. We are the habitat organization. And yes, you know, it started with pheasants, but, you know, we could impact quail by the way we could impact 
sage grouse, lesser prairie chickens, uh, other upland species, and not change our mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and and at the same time, recognize that there you know there won't be a sage grouse forever. There won't be a lesser prairie chicken forever. That doesn't mean that resource doesn't need our help. Mm -hmm. And we could continue to derive acres in the ground, grasslands, um, native prairie. Um, we, we're also recognizing that we're having a great impact on water, soil. Um, again, we're starting to stack these benefits mm -hmm. and uh, trying to be more relevant, right? So we're trying to tell our story in a broader, to a broader constituency. This isn't, you know, yeah, the name is pheasants. Yes, the name is quail, but we're having incredible uh, impact on these lands. You, you, you brought, bring up sage grouse, and, and that's another highlight I just want to touch on because I think it speaks to, it's incredibly important component of your character where your word is your commitment and um, I, I I see the tears coming in. Yeah. I didn't, I, um, but it's something that every person that's ever worked with you as a partner or as an employee values you. Your word is your bond. Your word is gold. And I think the Sage Grouse Initiative story is one thing that I want to just have you touch on to highlight that that I value, that I've always valued, and I know others, but, you know, I think about 20 years working for a boss, you know, you want to be able to feel confident in the leadership. And this story to me is like, I've worked for the right guy for 20 years. Okay. So I'm going to do this. Try, I'm going to try to do this with a smile yeah. instead of a tear. So um, there's a gentleman who's since passed, passed way too young. Uh, his name was Jim Range. And Jim was one of the leaders of the Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partners, TRCP. And uh, their good partner, uh, Jim was one of the first people that I was introduced to in Washington, DC, as one of the players who gets things done, who moves things, who's avid conservationist at every level. Um, and uh, and George Cooper, who's the George Cooper was the CEO of TRCP, and Jim Range was a chairman of that board. They invite me down to uh, to uh, Kansas, and we're hunting, and we're shooting a film, one of their TV programs, and we're this is the theory, we're we're, we're we do shoot a film hunting pheasants and hunting quail. Uh, and then like the first evening we're in having dinner in a bar and the shoe drops, right? They've got me cornered as I, as I think back on it, they had me cornered in a bar booth and said, okay, we want to talk about sage grouse and prairie grouse. It's like, okay. And they said, uh, and you got to know Jim range. He goes, Pheasants Forever needs to go do this because you're the only sons of bitches who can get it done. And there was bourbon involved, <laughs> you know, at that moment. But, you know, uh, 
And I said, boy, that's, you know, we don't have the money to do that. You know, and I walked through our model, you know, I don't have money mm -hmm. to go to stage grouse. And he said, so how much do you need? And I mean, it was, I said, I said, okay, I need a million bucks. And he goes, okay, I'll go get you a million bucks. And then you're going to go deliver what these birds need, you know, and he gave me the reasons and we shook hands. So, uh, nine months goes, uh, well, a year goes by and Jim passes, he had cancer and he passed very quickly. Mm -hmm. He never raised a million dollars for us. Within a less than a year of that, the Sage Grouse Initiative was formed out West. Um, I did go out to some of the key meetings they had as they were building this and what needed to be done. And came back, talked to our team. Uh, we went through all the scenarios, right, of what this would mean, right? How do we, how do we impact this resource? How do we fund this? Um, will it be, you know, can we create a membership, a chapter model after this? And, you know, again, those were no, there's not enough people to form chapters. There's not enough interest to create a membership. Um, but our mission statement doesn't say we're supposed to have more members or more chapters. It says we're supposed to do deliver habitat for pheasants, quail and other wildlife. And we take essentially the farm bill biologists model mm -hmm. and project it into that geography. And it's roughly a, an 11 state uh, region in the Northwest. And we jump in with both feet. And it was absolutely because of the handshake. Yeah. For Jim Range. Um, and it, it, the evolution of what that meant to us as an organization, you know, we had gone through our strategic planning. You know, if you projected a map of the United States, you could see, you know, every county chapter in the pheasant range, you know, on the map, you could see all the quail forever chapters. You could see where we had people on the ground. And then there was these areas that we called white space, mm -hmm. right? How could we have an impact in a geography that has very few people, uh, won't sustain chapters necessarily from our historical uh, model. And is that why we're not going to go do it? Hmm. Because we can't have a member? Because there won't be a chapter? Well, we got over that. Mm -hmm. that mission, again, the mission was more important than members or chapters. We still had to pay for it and mm -hmm. come up with partners who are willing. And that changed, I think, the trajectory of the organization as well, because our success in the sage grouse range and the number of partners we work with allowed us to actually be incredibly successful in the quail range, especially in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. And then now, now in the Southwest, um, these programs have, uh, the ripple effect has been incredible. And there's, boy, there's almost nothing that we can't do with, when we, find the right partners and we come together uh, and that's taken off in, you know, to, to modern day, to, again, to go to water, soil, pollinators, monarchs, 
-hmm. climate resiliency. Um, and then I'm going to all transition us into, <laughs> and yet it still wasn't enough. So that's, that's where I, I want to just say a couple words as we transition there. So that, you know, we've talked for 55 minutes at this point. And people are like, gosh, I thought I was coming into a podcast about Call the Uploads campaign. But I think this journey through your career has been incredibly insightful for, uh, for all of us at work with you on a day-to-day -day basis. We see some of these things as key traits. But for the listener to see your passion for the mission to do more, you know, like, your guide, your North Star has always been, can't, how, how can we put more habitat on the ground? It's not how do we raise more money? How do we gain more members? Which all is part of the greater good. But your North Star, the way you've led for your entire career, is how do we put more mission on the ground? That Through your entire story, that's, that has been absolutely transparent. And I, it, I also, some key points, like your value of partnerships. In conservation world of 2023, it's absolutely critical. But it yes. wasn't that way when we started. It was very much parochial. You know, right. the Sharks versus the Jets. Uh, you know, the Yankees versus the Mets. Nowadays, things are much more uh, collaborative, right? I had to get a baseball analogy in there, David. <laughs> so, um, and, and also your word is your bond. You know, that's come true, come through in this story throughout the entire way. But the single biggest thing, well, the, I think your North Star of Habitat is your single biggest thing, but a 1A that I, I strive for in my own career, but you've mastered, Howard, is your ability to look in the mirror without any defensiveness and say, how do we do more? I think that's hard. That's a really difficult trait. You know, like, you know, set that pride aside of the accomplishments of the good things you've done and you, for you to keep the North star of habitat say, yeah, I've, I've worked my tail off. We've done good things, but you always, but here's the but, right? You always, but here's the but. How do we do more? And that now after 58 minutes <laughs> brings us to Call the Uplands campaign. So talk about your thought process to once again, at a pivotal moment in the organization's history, at a pivotal moment in the Uplands, for you to look in the mirror and say, but... So, you know, the butt came well before Call of the Uplands. The butt came when, you know, if we looked at the organization and the tools we had and our strengths, the single thing we didn't have was a development program. I mean, truly a true development program. How would we go out and ask uh, donors, uh, people with resources uh, for, for big dollars to drive mission? Um, Enter, you know, David Bue. I mean, David came to us, you know, I don't even know how many years now, David. How many? 2007. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and David came 
you know, with here's where we, you know, you know, here's here's what Howard needed. We need to develop really a development initiative. Um, I don't have that. Nobody on our team has that. Um, and we absolutely walked it out. You know, we had a nominal, you know, the grassroots campaign for 25 million, you know, and in that whole time, we're also, again, looking at a landscape where, you know, you know, looking at our case statement for mm-hmm. Call of the Uplands was, you know, we lost grasslands the size of Kansas. Yeah. And no matter what we did, and we were, you know, at that moment, you know, doing, you know, in 2007, we were probably doing 500,000, maybe close to a million acres annually, and then to lose millions and millions of acres continually. Um, and again, how do we take the organization to a new level? And one of the conversations we had was we couldn't grow forward fast enough under the current tool set. So, and, and we were growing at 10, 12 plus percent, which is phenomenal in mm-hmm. our NGO. It's phenomenal. And it's still not enough. How do we actually go vertical, right? How do we get on another plane? And David and the team and the leadership team uh, built out what would become uh, Call of the Uplands. And believe me, um, when they did the science, the math, the art to come up with what's the right number, 500 million was as scary as you could get (laughs) at that moment. So this is, you know, seven years ago, we started the planning. I think year six, we knew the number. And then to say it out loud in front of God and everybody, even though we were in silent phase, to acknowledge it to ourselves that we could raise $500 million. And then again, what are we going to do with it? Right. I mean, that was key. You know, what's your case statement? We're not going to build a building. You know, this you say a capital campaign, but we're not building a building. That's not our, who we are. How do we drive $500 million into the ground, into education and outreach, uh, a bigger voice in Washington, D.C.? There had to be measurables. Um, and David and the team, and this is, you know, this was a ripple effect across the entire organization. Every single team member uh, at the end of this was going to have to be a part of this. Every single chapter volunteer at the end of the campaign um, would have to be a part of this in order for this to be successful. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to know what David was thinking. I mean, really? <laughs> Go ahead, David. It was a scary point in time. <laughs> Half a billion dollars, and uh, you know we we came up with that number and doing the math uh, two nights before we were going into a board meeting um, in uh, the Twin Cities to ask for the support of our national board to move forward with it, and they did. And boy, the the, the rest is history. You said it really well, Howard. I mean, it. you look back on it now, it, it was us kind of drawing a line in the sand, saying enough is enough. You know, working hard, um, doing great things, but still losing so much habitat across the country and in key areas. And so we knew we needed to be bold, 
and we knew we needed to be ambitious and I think we also realized we were going to need a lot of help mm-hmm. and um, yeah it, it's been it's been a journey so let's talk about that journey we, we you know probably a year ago no it was two years ago now episode 106 we talked about the public phase of the campaign but back back up and talk about the entirety of the journey because not everybody lives and breathes fundraising um you know in terms of what the scope of a campaign means and the life cycle of a campaign um some folks are like boy i just heard about that recently so tell us about what's been going on the last six years and in the life cycle of call the uplands campaign yeah, you bet. You know, it it truly was a a process and and a plan and and um, you know working the plan uh, along the way. Uh, you know, going back six years ago, we assembled a campaign planning committee uh, that um, was was charged with uh, helping us develop a new strategic plan that would have a greater impact on pheasants and quail. That led to a campaign steering committee, which was uh, chaired by Steve Schaefer. Um, and then we moved into that kind of that quiet phase of a campaign to see if we can if we can do this. Uh, we knew half a billion dollars was our goal, um, but we needed to get some support from some individuals at higher levels than we'd ever asked them to participate in before. And they answered the call mm-hmm. um, time and time again. And... Um, you know, pretty, pretty amazing to, to think back at that now that, um, we had tremendous amount of support from individuals and, and partners. Um, and then holy smokes, here comes a pandemic in the middle Mm -hmm. of the thing. And Howard, I remember so many times, uh, in going into some of our leadership meetings and board meetings where you said, well, thank goodness we're in the middle of a campaign right now. Mm -hmm. And, and boy, were we ever, uh, we were, we were surrounded with a conservation community that 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 rose to the challenge, and um, yeah, and that that took us to that public launch of the campaign in in February 2020. Yeah, it, I also think back about you know Howard talked about raising elevating the organization to a new level, and I think about that in a cultural shift perspective. For the first, you know, since 1982 until the campaign launched, we were a transactional organization built around memberships and partnerships at a larger level, right? Partnership, corporate partners and USDA, but people and entities didn't think of us in the same manner of, I'm a a diabetic, American Diabetes Association, right? make a donation to American Diabetes Association to try to solve diabetes, right? Or or your local church or it, it, people who mentally categorized us historically in a different bucket, even though we're a 501c3 nonprofit, a charity, same thing as American Diabetes Association, the different sort of mentality historically around conservation organizations. I think I think that the one of the biggest lasting impacts that will resonate as a result of call the uplands campaign is that shift. That yes, we we yeah. membership is critically important, but it's only the beginning of the journey. 
does that resonate with no you? No doubt. It, it, you know, it really does. It, no, make no mistake about it, at Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever, we like to have fun. You know, and and uh, we get passionate about being in the fields with our, our bird dogs and things like that. But we also, as, as Howard mentioned, we've got a mission, and we need to deliver that mission. And in order, in order to do that, we need the support of people that look at our organization as one that they can invest in mm-hmm. and get and get results on the ground results as because of their investment. Yeah, and I think about you know, the, just the effectiveness and efficiency of that mission, you know, that when we raise a dollar, you know, the percentage of that that hits the ground for habitat, you know, in that 90, 90th percentile, mm-hmm. that's not a one year basis. <laughs> that's that's four so 40 years. decades, four decades of collective fundraising where 90 cents on the dollar thereabouts has hit the ground for habitat, which when you talk about return on investment, whether you're thinking about it from a, you know, your, your family perspective and your IRA or your stocks or your investment of plan giving, which should be as important to you, you know, what, how you want to leave the world, you know, it is an incredibly um, impactful statement to say when, when an entity, um, you know, a, a, a company, uh, a, plan donation is given to pheasants forever and quail forever you know it is hitting the ground for the intended purpose that that donor um is writing the check for yeah yeah right on and um you know at pheasant fest and quail classic here a couple of weeks ago we were able to celebrate mm-hmm. you know raising over half a billion dollars 565 million dollars um an unprecedented investment in our uplands and you know bigger than that was the 11 million acres that we restored enhanced and protected 11 million acres phenomenal Um, more than 2 million acres open to the public Uh, 32,000 acres permanently protected guys forever Mm -hmm. and then you know we we do so much work with uh, education and outreach and hosting 16,000 events over the course of the Call of the Uplands campaign. Much of that time, a pandemic, and we still rate, had 16,000 events, getting more than a million people involved. It was pretty, pretty amazing. And, and really, the, the conservation community rallied, and we were um, able to build and enhance our culture of philanthropy along the way. Howard. So um, celebrating at Pheasant Fest and the Quail Classic, you know, that was, you know, coming into that to be able to thank, this this is what continues to startle me, um, to thank those donors, those individuals, and for them to turn it around and thank us for allowing them to be a part of this. Um, And this is the... um, the part of the mission that we actually get to share. Um, people who, let's say, walked into some of these early meetings didn't know what their legacy should be, mm-hmm. didn't know that they could be a part of something so big that they could never have imagined. And the fact that they got to be a part of Call of the Uplands and see the impact that they had on a landscape 
and where this and also where this was going that this isn't over um that's humbling mm. when people who you ask to write a big check or contribute time and energy and they do it and you want to thank them and they flip it around and go no god mm. thank you you know mm. for that first meeting that second meeting that third meeting and and by the way we got more to do mm. right they're all in and it's just so many individuals uh that was just such a constant throughout that celebration and, and throughout the campaign um it's just uh, amazing and so for me and, and david heard me and i think bobby you've heard me say this even five years ago at the point we said okay we're gonna go knock down 500 million dollars okay. okay we can do that and i believe the team's gonna do this i just know it for me it was what was going to happen after that it wasn't the goal line it was the toolbox that we were building to take us into the future uh, again that we never had you know development wasn't a part of our culture internally as a part of the organization and now it's our mo um, it's who we are to your point you know becoming a member is wonderful but it's just uh, your first step in a path to having a greater impact on the things you love, the things that you're passionate about, and we can help you deliver that. And and not only in, as a $1,000 life member, because we can take that 1,000 and make it 5,000. Um, this is what's gonna carry this organization into the future and allow us to do more. Um, absolutely, we rang the bell. Um, yeah, we love million acres. That was 2 million acres more than we had uh, originally planned, mm -hmm. right? Our goal was nine million, yeah. and, and somebody had asked us that somewhere along the way. I think maybe year four. That you know, it looks like we're going to hit that. So, do we ring the bell a year early? <laughs> no, we run through <laughs> no. the finish line. Right. And the value of that finish line: sixty-five million dollars. Yeah. Right. That was you know. The standard deviation of the campaign. <laughs> There's the accountant coming out. <laughs> here, here he comes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you say that you go, okay. Mm. We our goal was 500 million. We did 565. It's not 65. It's 65 million dollars mm. that we exceeded that. And again, we're going to continue to work with our donors, uh, expand that donor base, and. Uh, allow people to find out what their real passions and what their real legacies can be. So I want to I want to take us to how this is all culminated at the same time with your retirement, right? So there was forethought. Before I go there, I'm just I'm curious from both of you. And we'll start with we'll start with David. Is there? 11 million acres, 2 million acres of access, all these uh, events. Is there any one thing that you you are particularly proud of on a personal basis that that happened as a result of the campaign Grasslands Act? You know, um, you know we've had three pillars, habitat, advocacy, education, and outreach. Anything personally to you that rings like, that was damn cool. David, anything jump out to you, or is it, or is it purely the collection of everything? 
at two things. No, okay. Number one, by far and away, was collaboration. Mm. The the collaboration of our of our team and our volunteers and partners and, and, and some new donors and working together towards common goals, it was amazing. It, the best exercise in the history of our organization from a teamwork perspective. Second thing, more of a program specific, um, we took a great program, Build a Wildlife Area, mm. to an entirely another level. And mm-hmm. in doing so, we added the word access to our mission statement mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. We've been doing access work for 40 years, but adding it to our mission statement along during that course of that campaign was monumental. Mm-hmm. And now the work we're going to do going forward around build a wildlife area, permanent habitat protection and access is, it's really a springboard for us. Yeah, great answers. Anything for you, Howard, that uh, makes you feel particularly proud on an individual project basis? I think the fact that we were you know, what the world throws at you and the cards you're dealt. Um, in So COVID hit us and not only, you know, thank God we're in this campaign, but the team's reaction on how we're going to move forward um, and you know the, the both of you and along with our other uh, executive team leadership you know that the first couple weeks of the uh, of covid was do we send people home do we stop what we're doing do we um you know circle the tents and weather this storm uh and the consensus was you know bullshit. Hmm. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen, um, but we know who we are. We know what we're supposed to do. So let's stay on mission. Let's keep our people on the ground delivering mission. Um, and to go through COVID, lose essentially all of our banquet fundraising, you know, 500 plus events. So that was $25 million at the chapter level that we did not raise, uh, no, 20, 30,000 paid memberships that went away. Mm-hmm. And then in that year, we set a record in revenues. We set a record in habitat delivery, 2 million acres. Um, for me, that was the testament. And believe me, the call the uplands was a, a big part of that, but it wasn't the only thing. I think it was, was a mentality of why we're here. We're not here, you know, boy, it's easy for me to say, you know, we weren't here to keep our jobs, mm-hmm. right? We were here to deliver mission. That's why we're here. Nothing, you know, more meaningful than that. So now how do we do that? Mm. Right? That was the questions that we kept calling, you know, at weekly meetings, mm-hmm. you know, and then bi-weekly meetings and sometimes a couple, three, four meetings a week. How do we keep mm-hmm. doing what we're supposed to be doing? Um, and to me, that was the tell that this organization can weather any type of storm if we stay focused on who we are and what we do. We'll find a way to go deliver. Yeah, that's a wonderful point to underscore. You know, that, <laughs> no one in the world could have predicted 
what has happened right. in the duration of the last six years and to overachieve the goals and put 11 million acres of habitat on the ground amidst everything that's been thrown at all of us, all of humanity is wonderful. Um, at the same time, as this campaign's going on, and again, this is, you know, I think a testament to Howard, you know, we all, you know, maybe experience some level of senioritis in high school or college, right? <laughs> we, uh, we, we enjoyed the, uh, the fruits of our schooling in the final couple of semesters. Um, that was absolutely never the case <laughs> with Howard as you close out your career. You sprinted through the finish line with this campaign. You sprinted through your career. Um, take us through the transition process in your mind from how your succession plan conversation dovetailed with this campaign leading us up to the passing of the baton so obviously this is a more personal you know conversation that i had with my wife wendy about when is the right time uh and we've been having this for i suppose 10 years you know what's the magic age what's the magic number um i'll say i probably a year longer than I anticipated. And you can blame David for that. Uh, <laughs> right. I kind of want to be gone when I was 65. And, but yeah, the campaign. more work to do, Howard. Right. Right. Exactly. David said, well, you don't get to leave before we ring the bell on the campaign. You can't leave it, you know, half done or, you know, almost done. Um, so that extended it for sure one year. But, you know, in reality, to answer the question, you know, my planning probably started five years ago. Uh, my handshake with the, my board of directors was I need, they wanted two years notice. Um, you know, I don't have a contract, so they could have sent me home the next day, but um, they wanted two years notice. Uh, but five years ago was if I'm going to sleep at night and feel good about the organization, about where it can go, these things should be in place. And all of those things have aligned. Um, our internal leadership team, uh, we restructured subtly, well, not even subtly, our organizational chart to realign for the future. Um, the board of directors who are gonna make the decision about the next CEO. Those are things that you can't control, mm -hmm. you know, to a certain degree, but I still need to be comfortable in who the leadership was there. Um, and in the end, you know, all the stars aligned. I, I'm sleeping really well knowing that our leadership team is in place. We've got an exceptional board of directors. Um, the whole process uh, for the CEO national search, I was not a part of that. I was very conscious that it, you know, my fingerprints should really be on the future. I've had my shot. Um, now the board um, needs to make that call. I was just thrilled. They went through 150 applicants and came down with two internal. And at that point, there was no wrong answer for me as to who they selected. I think Maryland's going to do an outstanding job. And uh, 
the opportunities in front of this organization are so incredible. Uh, and you've heard me say this. So the co most common question I was getting, you know, even at Pheasant Fest or in, over this year, when, you know, a year ago when we announced my retirement, um, could you ever have imagined that we could be this big, this impactful? And absolutely not, right? I mean, I <laughs> met Jeff in his basement with 12 chapters and, you know, I got to be there, you know, in 87 when we had maybe a 150 chapters and we were a million dollar organization and you know every evolution when we were 10 million when we were 50 million i couldn't imagine being a hundred million really right i think i felt it was there was some static levels of again even 10 12 percent was wonderful mm -hmm. now today i can imagine and I can imagine doing, you know, we did 2.4 million acres last year. Again, another record. I can imagine doing 5 million acres a year. Hmm. I can imagine, you know, we broke a record and did 100 million in revenue. I can imagine doing 200 million, 300 million, uh, being 90, continuing to be 90% efficient. Um, in the new space that we have open to us and, and we've been working on this for five years or more so this isn't brand new the team knows this we're working on it but um if you think about the chapters as the hunting community um which is still vibrant uh still growing our chapter revenues continue to uh, move upward um, they continue to do more they continue to have a, a bigger vision of their landscape you know, beyond their counties. But um, we now have opportunities outside the hunting community, like right of way and energy corridors, sustainability, uh, the impact that we can have in Washington, DC on a National Grasslands Act, uh, which we could never have imagined we could do. Um, it just keeps building on itself. Um, so this is landscape uh, views um, forget about the tent, right? We, we got to build a bigger, better tent. We're well beyond a tent. A tent can encompass the impact that we can have across this landscape. And, and the team's going to do that. Um, that's so exciting for me to be able to step back and watch what you're going to do next uh, is incredibly exciting. And um, while you're retiring, the organization and the mission will be with you forever. And as a symbol, you know, another symbol, you know, we, we started the conversation with a symbol of a rooster. Um, and we'll close out the conversation here with discussion of a symbol that you put on display at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Tell, tell us a little bit about your thought process there and what that symbol is. So again, we go have to go back about five years when we announced to the team internally that we were going to do 500 million. There was, you know, there was a lot of air sucked in the room. And as we kind of walked them through it, um, and I think it was Jordan yeah. or didn't said, okay, if we do this, will you get a tattoo? <laughs> and, you know, my knee jerk was, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. I'll, that's an easy thing to do if you guys go out and knock down 500 million. Well, five years go by and it's like, holy cow, I got to 
you know, we're going to do this and the team's doing it big. And so enter the rooster. And so I got to, and my, and this is on my wife, Wendy, I was going to get a pheasants forever logo on my shoulder and a quail forever on another shoulder. And that'd be awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. And she went, God, no one's going to see it. And I was like, well, wait, well, it's not for the world to see. This is a statement to my team. And she goes, no, you either do it and own it or not. And I was like, okay, so now it's going on my forearm. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, if you're, and I'm, this is my first tattoo, so I don't know about ink necessarily, but, you know, something down to your cuff. So if you could put on a business suit, you wouldn't see you know, that you had a tattoo. And even there, she kind of called me on it and said, own it. Who hmm. are you trying to impress now? <laughs> right. And so, and that was backed up by my son, Ian, and my son, Marco saying, yeah, own it. So the tail feathers go all the way down to my knuckles. So I can't hide it. Mm -hmm. uh, I own it. And so we had the big reveal. We kept mm -hmm. it under wraps uh, well, for the most part until Saturday evening at Pheasant Fest Quail Classic, big bank with 1,300 people uh, and popped it. So we had the reveal, had a, the crowd appreciated it. Yeah, as they <laughs> and, say, the crowd goes wild. Yeah, and then, you know, I also, I've, I've, you know, you've got some of these players down there like Steve Schaefer, uh, who led our leadership uh, team there uh, and, he comes from quail country, he comes from down in Florida. And I was waiting for him to scream, where's the quail? So I beat him to it and said, the quail are coming. I've got a, I'm scheduled for, you know, next couple of weeks to get the quail on my left arm, flushing quail. So <laughs> the quail are coming. <laughs> well, they look awesome. And it, it, you know, for folks that we'll, we'll post a photo with the podcast, uh, um, of the of the rooster it's it's darn impressive and it does illustrate <laughs> if you couldn't hear it in your voice you could see it on your body your commitment to the organization um and most importantly the mission uh i'm, I'm going to get to the closing thoughts here before i go to closing thoughts i want to ask david natural human tendency is you know we just raised half a billion we just did 11 million acres of, of upland habitat but the upland mission needs us more than ever it needs us mm -hmm. now that we continue to lose habitat the nash the natural question is why don't we just kick up another campaign instantly right so how do you how have you been answering that question what's the next step for us yeah great question pheasants forever and quail forever have become the voice of the uplands and we're going to keep the spirit of Call of the Uplands alive, no doubt about it. We're going to take what we learned over the last several years, embed it within our organization and how we do business. And we're going to be laser focused on making upland habitat for pheasants and quail. And um, we're, we're, going to, we're going to keep the, the momentum that Howard built over all these years front and center, and we're going to, we're going to keep going on, on that trajectory. And um, 
get better along the way, challenge ourselves to get better and better. Yeah, there's probably a time down the road where there might be something that we need to address head on through some sort of a campaign or initiative. But right now we've got a, we charted the course really well and, and we're going to see this thing through. Yeah, and it, it, it really is embracing that cultural shift we talked about fundraising donations and you know camp like build a wildlife area it is more than a transactional approach from here on out it really is investments in the uplands and you know people that want to leave a legacy we are a destination to leave a legacy for the uplands correct absolutely yeah all right closing thoughts um david we'll, we'll start with you because howard Howard's earned the final closing thought over his career. So um, what's your closing thought as we wrap up how, you know, this, this conversation about Howard's career, call the Uplands campaign and, and putting the cherry on the top of this celebration? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, uh, it's hard, and I'll try not to get teary-eyed at this point in time, but you know, Howard uh, has built such a great foundation uh, for us, great platform for continued success, and I really think his legacy will be um, really what lies ahead. Mm. You know, for the organization and the impact we're going to make, and and there will be many times, Howard, where we will say, "Well, remember when Howard said this." Or remember when Howard challenged us to do this, and we're going to continue to challenge ourselves to to get better and impact more uh, as we go ahead. So, thank you for everything you've done for for the organization. You've assembled a heck of a good team, and um, the the volunteerism and your commitment to our chapters and volunteers over all the years is probably one of your one of your biggest. Um, you know, kind of legacy fundamentals we didn't touch on too much today, but um, they're here, and the, and those volunteers and chapters are uh, more motivated, inspired than they've ever been before. So, thank you for that as well. Yeah, and, and shout out to all those chapters, the volunteers, the members, the agency partners, the corporate partners, the foundations. Um, the campaign, the successes of those 11 million acres doesn't happen with all those collaborative, you know, big bucket partners. But I mean, you think about the volunteers and the chapters as the, you know, the, the pointy end of the shovel, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. we have 750 chapters and roughly 4,000 volunteers given of their blood, sweat, tears, commitment to this organization. We don't exist. None of us get a paycheck. The Habitat mission doesn't exist without those volunteers putting on events at the chapter level every single season. Um, Howard, how do you how do you uh, top off when, in a final thought a conversation about your career and in, in uh, forty years here? Uh, you know. So I've had the best job on the planet for, you know, 36, 37 years. Um, it's been a blink, hmm. right? Hasn't been, doesn't feel like 36 years. It feels like single digit years. Because um, every day there was something new and spectacular that the team was delivering, that was they were building um, the number of faces um, that have been allowed to be successful here. Uh, 
so many people who, who, you know, young professionals who came here maybe for a small number of years and then moved on uh, to new agencies uh, or organizations. Um, I feel like we've all, and the whole team feel that we, we've planted seeds, mm -hmm. this, uh, our ethos into so many other agencies and it's paid incredible dividends. It'll continue to pay dividends. Um, and again, I'm just so excited for the future. Um, I'm gonna be on the edges of this. You know, I don't, I don't want, you know, my shadow to cross anyone's, but um, I'm gonna be paying attention um, I'm, I'm going to still be on some other national boards in the conservation space. We've talked about some of those. Um, and, you know, I'm going to work, help work in the diversity, equity, inclusion space to, you know, bring more new faces into the outdoors and conservation. I'm excited about that. So um, at the end of the day, I'm just so proud of the team, uh, the people that have made the difference here and believe me it's it's not an organization it's the people mm. that uh, deliver this day in day out so many people smarter uh, than myself uh, who had innovative ideas um, you know and yeah we had a culture of innovation and that's uh, that builds on itself um, so a lot of muscle memory there and so Hopefully, some of my sayings will go away. Like <laughs> other duties, like, you'll get chargeable. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, thirty-six years. Well, that was interesting. Okay. Now, right? What have you done for me lately? Right? We need a fire. You know, I love the smile. Like you know, I'd come out of Ron Leather's office, and he'd say, "We just knocked down six last week. We just knocked down, you know, six point five million dollars, and you know, thirty new positions, and and that was like Friday. And it was like, okay, it's Monday." So what are you done for me today? You know, and right. I mean, that there's a lot of muscle memory in, you know, you get to celebrate for a moment in time our success and the people that drove that and the partners that drove that. But there's still empty chairs. There's still work to be done. Um, and again, these are battles to be fought um, for forever. We're going to be fighting this. Um, there's so much to do. Um, and Dozens Forever, Quail Forever is going to knock it out of the park. You know, we'll finish with a baseball analogy. So. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate those. Um, you always know your audience very well. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's hard to sum it up in, in, with anything other than thank you. Um, you know, not that I'm the voice of all employees and members, but somebody's got to say thank you. Um, thank you for, Jared said it um, during Pheasant Fest, we all need role models. And you've been an unbelievable role model. Thank you. For, for all of us. And thank you, you know, for staying true to that North Star, that Habitat mission and putting those dollars into the ground. Um, you know, that's, organization couldn't have had a better person in Howard Vincent. So it's, it's been an honor, and I know I speak for hundreds upon thousands of people. Uh, Thanks, very kind.
We look forward to seeing the quail tattoo too. <laughs> we'll share that. <laughs> okay, so now you two go get chargeable. All right. All right. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, listeners, thank you very much for, for sticking with us on this journey. Uh, donors, volunteers, members, thank you for delivering 11 million acres, half a billion dollars into the uplands for the call of the uplands campaign. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this organization. Uh, we'll, we'll catch up with Howard. Howard is practically my neighbor. So we'll do another podcast with Howard before too long. He's, uh, he's not gone for good. And I do have a podcast coming up with Marilyn Vetter in just a couple of weeks. So you get to learn a little bit more, um, in depth about Marilyn and spoiler alert, she has German short hairs. You think we have something to talk about there? All right, folks. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre, reminding you to always follow the dog. Thanks for listening.